Hello, and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Architect's Purpose Podcast. This is a discussion, a dialectic, if you will, into the true nature of what it means to be an architect in contemporary society. My name is Montgomery Boyd, and during this series... I'll be speaking with my dad, Michael Borg. I'm an aspiring architect. He has been practicing for at least three decades now. So, without further ado, this week's podcast is all about The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. Here we go. So I just... Figured to preface and before we actually get into it, um, as more of a structure for these, so we don't go too far off on any um <laughs> tangents, you know, to try and keep it more structured, like the classes, you know, and um, and almost walk through what. We all t- talked about, and I don't think we'll have to really give a um, a full-on book report of the novel, but these books are also so known to us versus others who might have never even read them. But the overall purpose of this investigation and dialogue seems to be more about the abstract than what is the actual storyline you know and um that's correct i mean we we talk um uh obtusively <laughs> uh about about the book in some in some respects we we talk specifically about some of the things that are covered but we also talk about the principles and ideas behind it and then again how it relates to practice um and that's the, exactly. that's the key. That's the important thing is you have a fictional character um, or, or a series of fictional characters created by Ayn Rand. And how do they actually relate to the, the practice of architecture? Um, and I can even say that um, when we were talking about Brunelleschi's dome yesterday, it was how the practice has even changed when I started to how it is today. So, I mean, there's even that layer that's very interesting. And then how it'll really change as machine learning begins to take over. Welcome. And uh, I am pretty excited for this these really series of conversations to really put something down in writing or on recording, you know, because also we speak so often and so much that we can speak for hours and it'll go in many different directions. And for me also, it's, I can't always write everything you tell me down, and so 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 I can so I, I can actually go back and see. Okay, look up these four people that I haven't heard of, or 
have forgotten of buying Pow, and I'm pretty sure he made up one of those, but I'm not sure. No, <laughs> but, I don't ever make it. I, I, yeah, I don't ever make up people or things. Yeah, that, yeah. That, but, that, that's somebody else you know. Exactly. But I'm typically like one or two scotches in, and I can't always um, recall the well, entirety I, of the I think, I think conversation. I'm number, number four here, so I'm, I'm pretty, yeah. pretty, lu pretty lucid right now. Cheers, cheers. And so I, I felt this podcast would be aptly called The Architect's Purpose in that we're really trying to search for the nature of what it really means to be an architect in this ever-changing society and how technology and mob think and just the overall philosophical changes, how that both impacts architecture and also impacts society as a whole because they're basically almost one because society inhabits, you know, um, what we build and these books will be reviewing on the, the first being The Fountainhead by Ian Prand and they're all aimed at really trying to analyze these world-class or fictional, you know, architects, you know, and I was wondering from your class, what was the main takeaway or the main jumping off point um, that they really crept onto? I don't know if there was a main jumping off point. There was a series of questions that I asked them, um, one of which was the distinction between, so Ayn Rand writes these characters that are um, incredibly definitive. And, um, and so if you, if you look at Richard Keating versus Howard Rourke, um, one of the questions I posed to the students was, is there inerrant, you know, what are the inerrant differences between the two, right? Um, and, you know, their responses were, you know, you know, quite varied, but it was an interesting discussion because on Rand, you know, pits these two as diametrically opposed characters. And we all know that the reality of human beings is that they're not quite that pure. They're not quite that um uh distinctive that there's bits and pieces of Howard Rourke in some of us and there's probably bits and pieces of Richard Keating in us and so what does that mean you know as we look at the practice of architecture we think about the practice of architecture uh so you know one of the questions I posed to them was that well so if you think about Richard Keating what what was his motivation for what he was doing mm -hmm. and it was uh, you know, he wanted to be popular. He wanted to be well known. He sought uh, the exactly. Um, he sought the admiration of society, um, and he did it uh, in a way that uh, he wasn't uh, individualistic about it. He he had to ask people and seek people's approval. Uh, about things that before he formed an opinion of him about something himself, 
um, he was seeking, he was doing the, the populist thing. Uh, mm -hmm. he, was, he was giving the people what they wanted. And of course, Howard Rourke was the opposite of that. He knew internally what he wanted, how he wanted to do things. And it didn't matter whether society approved it or, it or not. It was something that he had to personally achieve uh, and, and, and pursue as an individual. Uh, and so those are the, the two very clear distinctions that were set up. And so I, I asked the students, you know, how they felt about that. Mm -hmm. you know, is it, um, and uh, so, you know, one of the, one of the characterizations uh, about Howard Rourke was uh, when he was, well, one of the questions I asked was, under what terms did Howard Rourke agree to, to work for Richard Keating? And it was, he agreed to do that if he didn't do any design. Exactly. Said, you know, I'll go out to the field, I'll do structural drawings, but I don't want to design because I don't want to design to the masses. I don't want to do what you're doing because for exactly. me, it, it's, it's failing myself. And it's, it's going against my, you know, personal ethics, my personal beliefs. And I think throughout the book, she really questions, <clears throat> are people willing to really compromise their values for notoriety or fame or, I mean, and as especially not stick to a Bridget in the Federalist School of Thought, but that doesn't even mean that one is unchanging. But it's also what do you value? Is it all of the likes and all of the admiration, or is it that real self worth and self esteem and that true independence from others? Or do you really need everyone else? out there and live as a second-hander. So that's the, I mean, I think that that's the crux of the situation um, that, you know, when I was asking the students, I said, well, what if, what if a client comes to you and says, I want you to build me a Tudor house? Are you going to turn them down? I mean, if you, if you need the job, you need the money, is there, is, mm -hmm. is there something inherently wrong about doing what the client wants? And Howard Work clearly makes the statement of, um, I have clients so I can build, not I, I build so I, you know, the reason I have, I have clients is so I can do the buildings I want to do, not the other exactly. way around. I'm not doing what the client wishes. Um, and, yeah. you know, and, and clearly Richard Keating was doing whatever the clients wanted. And so the question I asked them was that as a value statement, is it wrong to do what your clients want? It's a tough, tough, tough yeah. question, right? Because it's at one point it's tough to discuss without the actual details, but then on the, the flip side, it's, it's absolutely important to have the details be completely irrelevant because it seems it's way more on the nature of the building and it's part of also the hubris of the architect hubris and the reality that these these clients if they could do it themselves then they would just not hire you 
you know, so there has to be that element of either differentiation, but well, more no, importantly, that's not true. I think improvements. They, what do you mean? Client. So some clients hire you because they already have an idea of what they want. They just need somebody with a stamp and a seal and a license to execute it. So if you made a shit ton of money doing that, is there something wrong with that? Um, and so I related a couple of stories. One, when I was, um, you know, many years ago as a younger architect, I was working for a practice where one of the principals in the firm, um, it, it was a woman and she was doing, she did these circuit cities all over the country. Mm -hmm. um, and, and she just cranked them out. And I think she made like 80% profit on all of them. Um, but yet, you know, at the end of the day, she went home. She didn't, you know, she wasn't waking up in the middle of the night worried about this or that. Um, she did her job. It was a nine to five deal. She went home at the end of the day and got a good night's sleep and came into the office the next day. Whereas we were working on other, other projects that, you know, re required, you know, a lot more, um, individual attention to them. And so we were staying up, you know, all hours of the night and cranking through things and, you know, waking up in a cold sweat in the middle of the night, thinking about a project. <laughs> and, and so my question to my students was, was what she did wrong? It, you know, what's the value proposition there? Or what's the value? Is there a right and wrong about it? Well, no, she loved what she did. Yeah. She was providing a service to the clients. Um, and you know, it may not, not be something that I want to do, but for her, it was the right thing. It was something that she really enjoyed doing. And so there are different levels of achieving something in the profession of architecture. Um, and you just have to find your own path. Uh, another story I related was that, you know, there was a young woman who was in graduate school with me who, um, was very talented, but at the end of her graduate school, she wanted to go back to Iowa and just do these rural regional kinds of projects that mm -hmm. were meaningful for her community, but they weren't going to put her on the cover of architecture record. Mm -hmm. And, and so, you know, did she, you know, the question is, did she compromise her faith in architecture by doing that? Some would say yes, other, but at the same time, she was honest about what she wanted to do and true to her exactly. own faith about it. And in some ways, exactly. she was probably more committed to the role of Howard Rourke than, um, you know, people who, uh, you know, do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. So, you know, that's the quandary. That's the interesting thing. That's the interesting dialogue that we got into in discussing the book is trying to, you know, assess good and evil. Uh, is there, you know, is Howard Rourke all good and, and Keating all evil? Well, I think Keating is not evil necessarily, but he was willing to not cling to a set of values himself and was always changing with the current taste, the current feeling, whatever, um, whatever society wanted he was giving them. And you know, I think that when you abandon your convictions, there's something inherently bad about that or wrong about that. Yeah.
it seems it, especially in those two stories and it's all throughout the fountainhead as well just that element of true self awareness and what really drives you and in the book she definitely argues that at least Roark's happier and Keating ends up pretty miserable and um, there's an a very interesting dialogue between Wynand and Roark when he's asking him basically what drives him and it's an interesting dialogue because they both already kind of know the answer to the question, you know, um, but how Roark ends up explaining how at, at, at various times he was broke had zero come uh, 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 pork at all he was hated you know but he didn't really care at all he was i mean even whenever he was pretty much starving it was way more about his inner self and not compromising to the earthly um pleasures of being admired or what have you, and I feel she definitely tries to to argue good and evil. I don't, but I think it's good and evil. Not about it. It's about again following your passions. It's about being honest yeah. about those pursuits. It's and and so yeah, she does argue good and evil, but it's not necessarily the fact that Keating was giving the clients what they wanted. It was the fact that he was abandoning his own personal principles. Um, and, and I think that's the difference. And again, you see that in Atlas Shrugged with mm-hmm. you know, the characters that she writes in, in that book as well. Uh, and so whatever your values are, whatever your principles are, whatever you're passionate about, um, you, you either stick to it or you abandon it. And, and once you start to compromise that, then you start moving from the good side to the evil side, from the life to the dark. And I think that that's really what she's arguing. And I feel that crux of that argument is also really spelled out whenever Keating is finally paid partner, Prankon retires, it's just him, and he has a blank piece of paper. And he's like, what do I do? What do I do now, right? And and he calls Proark, and Proark designs the Cosmos Slotnik building, and then he's all over the papers for it, you know. Um, and it's just quite interesting. On if you don't have that foundation, whenever you do have that freedom, it's like, well, here's a blank page. What are the values that you start with? And if you're alone in a room without any input, what are you gonna do? Right. Yeah, and, and I related to my students as well. As I said, I've been in a position where, um, you know, as you know, my predilections are toward high modernism, uh, and those that's mm-hmm. the, the uh, that's the arena in which I like to practice. But I have been asked by clients to do things that are you know hyper traditional. And mm-hmm. I have told both my clients and my colleagues and my students that I feel like I can design anything. Um, mm-hmm. Just give me the parameters and, and you know, it, and if I have to 
and I, I was actually excited about doing the research of, uh, you know, looking at the work of McKim Eden wide and really studying it deeply and understanding exactly. that and then trying to apply that to a project. So exactly. there's something, there's something that I was passionate about in emulating, um, a, I don't want to necessarily call it a style, but emulating a, an era in architecture that, um, I mean, it, I mean, I studied McKimmy and White both as an undergraduate and 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 a, and a graduate in, in my postgraduate work too. That you know, it's if you diagram it, you know, some of the 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 work that they did, like the University Club in New York, is a brilliant building. I mean, it, it it's got the cortile uh, mm -hmm. in the center of it. It it um, you know, it stacks very nicely. It's it's very proportional. It, you know, as a planning exercise. You know whether or not you like the facade from its the traditional mm -hmm. aspects of it the planning of it is is brilliant and beautiful and elegant and and so the you know you can't just say that the work of mckimmy and white should be slid aside because it's not corbusier um you know there are aspects that you obviously can learn from every different era in architecture and you hold on to it and so if you have a client that comes to you and says i really want a traditional building, do you walk away from it? If you're Howard Rourke, you probably would. And if you're Keating, you would say, well, I'll, I'll do this for you. And, and if you're Michael Borg, you, you say, mm -hmm. well, I want to learn how to do this kind of building because I really don't do the, it all that much. And exactly. I want to experience this. And it's not you're not compromising your values because you only see the world in one way. You're looking yeah. at it as an exercise to, to deliver something at the very highest level, highest quality, just exactly. stylistically, you're doing it differently than what you would, what your, your own individual predilections are. So are you saying that you're compromising yourself as an architect to do that? And, and so I threw that out at the students, you know, let's have it, let's have a discussion about that. It yeah. Was, you know, interesting. And it all seems to quite depend on how you go about that neoclassicism or neo whatever, and to truly pay homage and do it appropriately versus what's really spelled out in the book and the movie of it's a hodgepodge with a BS facade with pie or just with everything being quite out of scale and just thrown on there versus it actually being erected out of the ground and really being well, just historical. But I think the difference there is, is um, so Rem Coolhouse said that, um, you know, the skyscrapers in, in New York were, were fascinating because they were, um, you know, they had these, they had great bases and they had elongated trunks and really interesting tops and, and they didn't really work because they were trying to be something that should have only been five stories and they were trying mm. to make. And, and so what I'm talking about is a client coming to me and not asking me to do a 50 story building that looks like a McKimmy and white building. I'm talking about something that is a three story building or four story building. Yeah that is emulating that kind of art, you know, stylistic architecture. Yeah. And, and, and I'm totally okay of doing that, but to try to do that on a 50 story building, I would tell the client, no, that's not appropriate. And, yeah. and I, 
probably would walk away from a commission like that. Because at a certain sense, it's basically an Italian palazzo that's been stretched up, you know, and right. that's not the point of all of those proportions. Um, it seems really that ProArc is pushing these forms and structures where a lot of what we see even t today are these just plain ex ex uh, extrusions because that's the cheapest and you can people buy it you know and puts that responsibility on the architect because if, it, if it's not on the architect it's obvious it's it's never going to be on the clients or the contractors or the city because it just hasn't happened you know um so i feel it has to be on the architect it to, it is yeah but i would argue that um, if you look at Mises Seagram's building in New York, mm -hmm. um, that um, the or even the you know the project study he did in Chicago, the um, you know those large uh, uh, seemingly faceless buildings um, have a very public sensibility about it, you know along. Mm -hmm you know, Fifth Avenue, he pulled the building back and created, mm -hmm. you know, two giant fountains in a public space that is inhabited by people all the time. And so mm -hmm. um, you could say that the skin of the building was just plain and banal and just, you know, ran up, you know, 40 stories and which is true, but he created an environment, he created a public space and an active public space by stepping the building back and placing it instead of along the street edge, he, he, you know, he created a, a respite within you know, the volume of the city. And exactly. from an urban point of view, he really understood that and, and how he, he built that building. Um, and so I don't think that the plainness of those, that, those facades uh, is a detriment to it. It's it's actually you know it, it, it's a very elegant project. It's a very elegant facade. It mm -hmm. is the it's the it's the people the copiers that didn't understand you know his in, insightfulness in how he went about his architecture that followed him and created really bad examples of it. Uh, yeah, and because also. Because the sleekness and the proportions are not something to really be taken all that lightly. And if you do something kind of similar as in like basically putting I-beams on the facade, you know, but it's this gigantic building that takes up an entire block and then boom, it hits the ground with no relief or like there's plenty of those kinds of ex uh, examples out there. And I, as... I mean, I really applaud peace for that gift of public space because, especially walking through Manhattan, how many real plazas and parks in the traditional sense are there? And very few. Yeah, like and the buildings and come down and they 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 crush the ground and they exactly. They, you know, I I've, I've always said that it, it's. It was the imitators that really hurt modernism, and that's why, you know, the the public and the world and even architecture 
responded to that because modernism's failures uh, because of all these bad imitators uh, really pushed us into a postmodernist era for, you know, 20 years uh, yeah. because we were trying to recall some of the beauty and elegance of, you know, the Beaux-Arts and you know, the Renaissance and so, and, you know, some of those buildings. But, you know, but, uh, you know, unfortunately, it, that was even, uh, you know, uh, that was even worse because it was pastiche. It was wallpaper. Yeah. It wasn't real. It didn't, exactly. it didn't hold space in the same way. And, um, you know, even those, you know, some of those buildings have really lasted the test of time. Um, you know, we even had, again, bad imitators of postmodernism that really created crappy buildings out there. So it's, it's the, it's the bad architects that are giving architecture a bad name. Um, yeah. It's the cheap imitators. It's not the people who are truly doing innovation. And I, it's, uh -huh. I always I always struggled with um so Ayn Rand had always uh or or you know she never said it but people felt like you know she was writing a book about Frank Lloyd Wright. Um Yeah. yeah. I did get that sense a lot through it especially in learning how he was completely dissed by Philip Johnson and all of them like like well, it wasn't that it was it, it was so you know his mantra or the you know the Lloyd Wright mantra was truth against the world right yeah uh, and, exactly. and so um and that that tr you know and that is easily translated to Howard Rourke's mentality it's like I know what I want to do um this is what I believe in and I don't care what the world says it's my truth against the world um and um but I also felt like you know, she was writing a little bit about Mies as well. Yeah. Um, because even though he didn't have the same mantra uh, as that, he certainly had uh, uh, the the work that he was doing and 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 uh, visually described in her book was for me more Miesian than Wrightian. Uh, yeah, because Bright was quite the um, quite the one for texture and tone and quite the interior designer and using all different kinds of materials where these, he was like, okay, this is what's current and modern and new. And why would I build out of stone or brick or anything else? You know, it's like glass and steel is clean and especially chrome steel. It, it's like, it's very, very clean. And also what he was doing, not just from the aesthetic standpoint, but from the columns, from the column systems and the overall play of space and basically opening it up free of walls. And I, that wasn't explicitly him, but I mean, he was in that era and, and improvements. And it was, I did also feel that the way she was describing Roark's architecture was also both, yeah. And um, it, even some of Corb, but as I've learned about the whole movement of the intellectual style, I mean, the international style and how it was almost about aesthetics as 
Paul, because why else would they leave out Frank Lloyd Wright? I mean, kind of generationally, because he wasn't quite as young, but still he was very well known, had a hell of an ego, and that also probably played some into it. But I don't know. Um, I felt she did a great job of combining a lot of different aspects of them versus, oh, yeah, I'm reading a Frank Lloyd Wright and talk off. And, and because also in the book, she really talks about like a house and a skyscraper and a storefront and on and on. Yeah. Heller sounded like it was Frank Lloyd Wright. Yeah. The, um, Oh, the, what was the first high rise? Um, Cosmo Slotnick or the. Um, no, no. The, Cosmo um, Slotnick, the, actually, Keating did. The Corb? Um, the Corb no, building? Um, yeah. Uh, well, that was one of them. But uh, the high rises that he did, in, that Rourke did in New York, were clear, in my mind, clearly Misian. Um, mm-hmm. But the clean yeah. that he did early on were very Frank Lloyd Wrightish. Yeah, you know, almost recalling you know things like Falling Water, and um, and and so you know, it, it, I think it was interesting because she she collaged this character of Howard Rourke by uh, several different architects, uh, and and I found that to be you know interesting, even though. I think his mantra, truth against the world, really played to, you know, Howard Rourke's sensibility all through the book. And also just the the myth that Frank Lloyd Wright has become, it's he's been this very extreme individualist and like he drew everything himself, they say. And um, so and all of this very, very quick, intuitive design even though it's actually quite ornamental as well he was i think almost like the ultimate kind of arts and crafts architect because he was able to really blend the modernism and the old and give it a feel more than something cold you know well i think you know frank lloyd wright uh he moved across a lot of different stylistic sensibilities. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the, the arts and crafts movement was, you know, at its height during, uh, you know, his popularity. And exactly. he didn't emulate that, you know, the fact that, um, you know, he created these molds for his bricks to be put on, you know, several of the California houses that, that we've yeah. seen together, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but that was one part of it. And then um, uh, the fact that, you know, he, you know, part of his, and, you know, if you, part of his doing of falling water is, you know, creating uh, modern architecture almost better than some of the, you know, Gropius and, and Brewer and some of the other architects that were doing it at the time, right? So mm-hmm. he, he had the ability to, you know, operate across a whole series of different aesthetic movements um, at the time and, and, and truly understand or try to understand, you know, if you think about it beyond style, style but, 
if you think about him incorporating modern materials and the open plan and the mm-hmm. fact that he was probably more popular in Europe than he was in, um, in the, the international style folks and the Europeans, um, mm-hmm. they loved his work and they, they studied his plans. And, and, you know, if you look at how he did, how he developed the Prairie House and how he did the Usonian House uh, as a, a prototype, you, you actually see Mies's work in the Barcelona Pavilion in that. Uh, how so because what Wright did is he built a, a design of a house around the hearth that, uh, that was the mm. center of the home and then all of the walls extended beyond that they extended out into the landscape yeah. which is very much like in principle the Barcelona Pavilion mm-hmm. that Mies did and, and even though it didn't mm. really have a fireplace or a hearth there was still a center to that composition and then all of the walls and, and, and pieces extended down into the landscape and if you take the uh, the gabled roof or the the hip gable roof that Wright did if you just take that part off if you look at the Roby house from under you know underneath where the, the extension of the soffit you can see the Barcelona pavilion um, mm. if you don't look at the shape of the roof and you just see that plane coming yeah. out it's the Barcelona pavilion and and so and they had so they had access to uh uh his portfolio it's the wasmuth i uh, i can't remember the exact name of it i'm not sure um but he so he produced this portfolio that was a series of plates of his you know, earlier housework and i think mm-hmm. it's either called wasmuth w-a-s-m-a-t-h uh it was his first, the first portfolio, and it went to Europe, and it was like wildly popular. I mean, it was studied by, uh, it was studied by Gropius, it was studied by Mies, it was studied by, you know, all these European architects, and they were amazed and fascinated by the quality of, of the work. And yes, it had perspectives and, and elevations, but it was really the plans that, that um, you know, had them captivated. And I. Th- think and feel that's something that is often overlooked especially today it's all about the pretty form and the shape and what's it look like from the outside versus what's the actual function and use of it and in that the question is what's the real efficiency of the plan and a lot of times it's terrible just because it looks cool on tail side and, and i can't give any better example than the cube house housing project in Rotterdam where it looks cool it's it's a cube on its side it's bright yellow it's up over a street you know so but when you get inside it's a cube turned on its side so all the volumes are off and literally in one hallway it has a corner sticking out and it turns like a four foot hallway basically in half. So I have to like squeeze past this corner thing and it's like, it makes no sense at all. And you can easily get tossed in there because all of the doors look identical, even the door to the stairway. So you can end up like walking into someone else's room on accident because <laughs> it's, it's because also it's Europe and it's not all clearly marked or it's in Dutch. So, you know, like it's not quite as easy, but 
I just feel that today, that plan and that real analysis of it, because it should start with the plan, because that's how you move through the space. And that's how you are. I mean, the I think you can also start with the section as well, but I feel with the plan, it's just how we actually are able to move and operate in it versus, oh, this is a cool parametric spiraling form thing. And it's like, yeah, it is cool, but like, what's the overall like how real different is that from a box or something in plan so if you go back to the late 50s when you had a conflagration of uh, brilliant minds all studying at or all teaching at the university of texas so you had colin uh -huh. Rowe, you had um Hayduck, you had um Get the the dean at Syracuse, um, but you had you know these these great intellectual minds that uh, were all trying to reach tenure track at, at, in Texas and they didn't get it and so they all dispersed to mostly the Northeast and and, and they ended up a number a number of them at Cornell and so the Cornell School of Thought is the plan the plan the plan if the plan is right everything else falls into place it's not about creating these ZD forms on the outside of the building, but it's really diving and making sure that the plan works because that's the experiential part of architecture. Um, and, and so, you know, there's a certain aspect of architecture that, that makes sense, but then I'll throw this out. If you look at, um, you know, one of, one of the most intriguing buildings that I find that that troubles me and it makes me um, fascinated is the Casa Musica uh, by Cool House, and it's this warped cube um, that has a series of very uh, different kinds of spaces, and and so it's it, it is experiential architecture, and the way he designed it was a journey through the building, and it had several different it had I think two performance halls um in it but it's a journey to the building where you end up at the end of the journey on top of the building overlooking the city so it's this it, it looks like this alien craft you know that that just landed in the middle of a, a medieval city so the form on the outside looks very perverse you know if you look at how it fits into the city but and even if you think about the plan from a conventional point of view um the spaces are ill understood as you move through it, but as you take this journey through the building, you know you, you enter the building, you go through the lobby, you go to the, into the performance space, you come out, you know, on on top to the practice rooms, and you end up on the very top of the building overlooking the city. It is that mm. was the purpose of the building was to create a journey through these different kinds of spaces, and so um, you know, and I think. Cool House is very good about creating those kinds of spaces, compression exactly. spaces, open spaces, even confusing spaces. So mm -hmm. I hear what you're saying about the plan, but then I think about a building like that, and it, you know, truly that was more about the section. Yeah, uh, it, it's not a it's not a core building. It's not a Mies building. It's it 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 is very much, uh, you know, true to the architecture that. 
Cool House has been pursuing for you know his whole career. Uh, yeah. But it's really one for me one of the more fascinating buildings that he's done because I really don't. I mean, I don't find it to be an attractive building from the outside, but yeah. I find it to be a fascinating building when you talk about how you move through the spaces and the kinds of spaces that you encounter when you're in it. Spot on, and I think Cool House is just the pastor of doing weird but intellectually deep buildings and spaces and forms. And there's one also, um, I believe it's the Touch Embassy in Germany, but I could be mistaken, but it's a cube and then um, an outer wall also. And the outer wall is all of the services and in the cube, it's that same kind of journey up through it and that many times there are these framed views of of the true monuments around the city and to really give you that sense of, of okay yeah i'm in this building but i can see that steeple or this tower or what have you and um, i'm playing on where it explicitly is but there's this great drawing of its plan and he basically uns or like unspirals it and it's this one long plan but in reality it's it has all of these turns and it basically corkscrews up to the top and i think there's a roof garden if i'm not mistaken but um and i think that's a space we can get into especially today and thinking about plan and and sections simultaneously in the creation of spaces without being such a slave to one or the other because in plan how do you really get the feel of the space i feel the plans for the organization and the section is that feel and that real experience of oh it's actually a sloping proof or whatever you know and um it seems it'll be um we're kind of doing it through modeling but that's more building volumetrically than thinking about it in spatial terms like section and plan you know and um but it'll be interesting if we can have even more in-depth programs that can operate on the, I mean, I feel private also is both basically at the same time, but it's still thinking about a 3D versus almost like a 2D section, if that makes sense. Um, but I don't know, it, it's, it seems especially going forward, we're basically going to be writing a script saying hey these are all of the the needs and the parameters for this plan or this building and it'll be like here it is you know i mean i, I think that's kind of or here's all of the different options and here's the most efficient but all of that still comes down to what's that proper input data and is all of that accurate and and or especially continuously um updated and it just it's it's quite interesting to me how 
even though we build all these buildings, especially the architect, is, it's like, okay, it's built, I'm done. And then they don't really ever go back and look at it or collect data. The only one I can think of offhand, I'm sure there's more today, but the uh, New York Times building by Prinzo Piano, how it actually in, uh, intakes some data to try and regulate its overall light usage. Um, but beyond that, it's like, well, could we actually analyze how efficient this factory is being in with a computer versus by hand and and or in uh, uh, or insert any program here you know that i feel were thought that will be out of a job but the job's definitely changing again just how you went through analog to digital i think i think experience that digital to the overused term of AI, you know, um, and be interesting to see how that goes, which is why I've really been trying to learn some elements of coding and to try and marry those two versus having to draw everything by hand, essentially. Well, I think there's going to be an aspect of that, certainly, uh, that, you know, the the buildings that you see that are, you know, plopped along uh, a highway that are, um, you know, intended for, uh, you know, that are developer driven, you're going to see mm -hmm. the analytics of those go to uh, something of, well, here's the most efficient skin, you know, here's the percentage of glass to a solid um, uh, to to help maximize the cost. You're gonna see the AI analytics of those things, um, you know, crank those things, crank those buildings out almost perfunctory. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and, and there's gonna be a need for some of that, you know, continuing or probably a lot of that continuing. Um, but I think it's the, it's the other kinds of buildings. It's the buildings that were where you know people aren't just going for a few hours and then going home. It's the it's the, the buildings that create places and spaces. It's the museums and the you know the mixed use projects and the uh, you know the creation of community that uh, you can you can't always do. You need the analytics to help manage you know constructability and cost and and so on. Mm -hmm. I think I. I, you know, I've, I've, I've said all, you know, to you probably more than once is that mm -hmm. there was a brilliance about what Corb did, which was, you know, creating, you know, something that was absolutely rational. And within every one of those rational things, there was something that was unexpected. And you look at it and go, holy shit, how did he come up with that curve? Or mm -hmm. how did he come up with that roof? Or how did he come up with that space? And, and, and so when he said that the architect was the, the the pure marriage between engineer and artist it you know mm. he played on both of those sensibilities he played on the engineering sensibility and he played on the artistic sensibility and he did more so on the artistic sensibility later on in his career because he had mastered the engineering side of it and so he had allowed him to play more artistically but i think in every building that has meaning there's always something unexpected in it um, mm. that even if it's hyper rational, 
to almost everybody who walks in, there's something that is, um, you know, something that is impulsive, something that is personal, something that comes from the gut versus the head. Um, yeah. It says this is the way it should be because it's going to make it different and interesting and resonate with a, uh, you know, with a, a, a certain character. Hmm. Um, and the, all the best buildings uh, do all have that. They really do. And it, it seems also, especially because this is almost a strictly modern phenomenon, but they're able to pull it off because they almost set up a rigorous uh, ideology or a rigorous pattern and then when it's able to be broken that's when people i think freaking highs it more versus it just all being super crazy and then people can hate it i don't know so um stravinsky wrote a book called the poetics of music that is mm. a short little book that you probably should read at some point and he talked a little bit about this that um the you know the the compositions that in music that we hear um, that really for lack of a better term resonate with us uh, <laughs> are the things that have a certain pattern that is deliberate and in intentional and it's when those patterns are broken in music that you recognize it as something astonish astonishing something mm. new, something something um, that 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 remains with you um, and it, I think visually we do the same thing, that there's, there are certain patterns that we see when those patterns are broken, those are the things that are memorable about it. And mm -hmm. so when I talk about the rationality of the core, it's those, it's those moments where he was irrational and artistic that, you know, create something very memorable about the, the about the buildings that he's done. Um, mm -hmm. and, and you can track that really through you know, name a, a famous architect that you really like, you can see that in their work as well. Mm -hmm. And then you almost get to the craziness of today. And I put the two in like the most formal craziness, probably um, Gary and Tom Bain, because I don't feel Bjork is as free with the form i feel he actually sticks a lot to the patterns or the very simple moves they make and that's kind of it where porphosis is just an entire composition in the building and you almost kind of don't know where to be in the eye and it just tracks and it tracks and um it's it isn't just about that formal beauty so especially with porphosis they push a lot of different technologies and pretty programmatic ideas beyond, oh, this is pretty, I hope people like it. A lot of the things they do from the from the facades and so forth are very intentional and they come from that technology or from that overarching idea. And um, I don't know, it seems that today there's a lot of shock value and with 
just all of these very pretty images. And a lot of times the renderings don't look anything like the actual thing, like we saw with the new Texas Ranger Stadium, how the <laughs> the renderings don't look that bad. Like I was pretty pumped, you know, and then like it, it, it's so dull looking, especially the proof. But like I've been with people and we've tripping past it and they've said, it's pretty cool and, I, and i'm just quiet you know because i'm like i don't want to yeah. just like roast it but like to i mean it's a brand new stadium and that's a feat in itself but just in looking at what was promised and then what's delivered it's like well we had to cut some costs somewhere even though the form is basically the same and that happens almost too often and then that comes back to how much should the architect stick to that original agreed upon drawing? Because something that's important about um, ProArc and the Fountainhead is he isn't necessarily, I'm going to design it exactly how I want to, but as long as you agree to the first set of drawings, which I feel it phrased that way, is there's a little bit of a conversation at least, because he has to know what kind of house, how many buildings are, like, he has to know something, you know, and then once they agree, then there isn't any fit picky changes or, oh, we'll save you 37 cents a doorknob or something, you know, and I'm sure you've had those probably very mind-numbing conversations. Oh, I had oh. one today, as a matter of fact. Oh, really? Over what? <laughs> just Yeah, it was, just, uh, oh so I'm doing a multifamily project in Carrollton, and um, it's, it, you know, you're arguing over, um, you know, the cost of, of uh, uh, what, it, what it costs per square foot for sod, or what it costs per square foot of, uh, you know, crushed granite, or what it costs per square foot of, uh, you know, steel in this this certain area, and oh, if we substitute this material out, it'll save us, you know, thirty cents a square foot. You know, like, well, yeah, but it's going to change the whole look of it. So no, we're not going yeah. to do that. Um, so <laughs> yeah, it's it's every day is a fight. Um, <laughs> And so that fight is mostly with the contractor pleading with the client to save any money possible, essentially, which really means the contractor earning more money. Like, like it seems that's the the argument. Um, well, it's, it's not necessarily that cut and dry. It's no, you know, the the client is saying, you know, this is what my budget is. The contractor's trying to work to get down to that budget. Um, you know, the costs for anything, you know, seem very fungible or malleable. And the costs that, that were yesterday are all of a sudden different today. You know, one of the things that we found out, because it's a, it's a multifamily building, and so mm -hmm. there's a great deal of wood construction for it. Uh, it's uh, two floors of, of concrete and four floors of of wood construction on top of it. Mm -hmm. Well, the price of wood now in, in the COVID era is at a six year high. And so wow. with that, so when the contractor first started pricing the job four months ago, uh, they had, you know, X amount for all of the wood framing that, that you know, is necessary to build the building. 
And now just the delta between four months ago and today is $1.1 million. Uh. Yeah. Uh. And so all of, all of a sudden, you know, through no, no fault of anybody's because Lowe's and Home Depot went out and bought all this wood because everybody's doing their home projects because they're staying at home. Yeah. Um, there's a spike on a material that you would just, you would have no idea that. So, all, you know, we had a project that was in budget. Now it's, you know, $2 million over budget because of one material, because of one issue. And so how do you combat that? And, and so you have to, you know, dig deep and try to find other ways of saving the project uh, money in order to get it built the way you envision it being built without compromising the overall quality of it. Uh, and it's through no fault of anybody's. I mean, it's not the fault of the contract necessarily. Huh. It's not the, not the fault of the architect, certainly. Um, but, you know, those, that, those are the realities of, of, of dealing with it. You know, and I've told you over and over again, it, it is so damn hard to get anything built because it's a fight from day one, whether it's a, an unexpected spike in prices or whether it's the fact that, you know, some, some, some subcontractor is really greedy and, and is, you know, gilding his, his prices beyond, you know, what should be normal. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's a it's a it's a deliberate all out fight to get something built the way you envision it. And you have to make the right decisions on it. Yeah. And it's it seems like there are plenty of times. Yeah, we could change that door and thob or footing or or that flooring or what have you, but it seems that you can only really know through doing a lot of them and being involved with a lot of them to know at what point does it really compromise everything because a question I was going to have is is it easier of a process if you can do design build and, and you are the contractor as well, assuming you can do it efficiently and properly. Um, but it seems that it's so up to the market. I mean, the reason Bill Bow is titanium is because titanium dropped and whatever covering he could have had on it went up, you know? And right. so it's, it's like, okay, titanium well, he it is. was going to do it out of stone originally. St- oh, really? It was going to yeah. be stone? I don't, yeah. I, that's, I actually kind of want to see that because. <laughs> Is it just like a stone veneer, essentially? Yeah, or, of course it is. Oh, yeah. okay. Because I don't know. I was thinking something a lot thicker because it's stone. But still, to get double curved stone, you just have to carve it, I guess. Like, but, yeah, exactly. But that means each piece is super well, but that's also how he operates, you know, and yeah. like. I, I I will design the program in which I will design everything. That's just like a level I'm trying to ascend to of not even being reliant on Prino or SketchUp or Brevet or any of these things that do have their own limitations because they also so are so um, in depth as well that 
breaking it down to what is more the essence versus just adding on and on seems to be a trick more so so than it being all kinds of um, overwhelming or just beyond even less sorry at times um but it's so um back to the book um i i really feel she pushes all of these characters into these extreme parts or these extreme roles where but all of us are really a part of all of them and how can we more so recognize that in ourselves more than trying to be so judgy of that's a terrible architect or that's a terrible person it's like well I think once you are already doing that and putting yourself on a pedestal comparing even to others then it's already lost well I would agree I mean I think that um I think the over underlying principle between all uh, for all of the characters is is to be you know true and honest about your you know, about your nature about your desires about the things mm-hmm. that are important to you and not to compromise those or not to manipulate others into it so if you look at the character of Tui you know he was all about you know manipulating things for you know his own his own ends and to take you know, souls some, literally yeah so there's something you know obviously inherently wrong because he didn't let people i mean he wasn't being honest about his true character his true nature um uh you know for him it was all about manipulation and control uh, and creating a society that he thought was the the right one um versus uh you know dominique or rourke or or uh, wine in, you know, any, any one of those that, uh, were, you know, so wine in, I think is an interesting character. So he allowed, he gave the people what they wanted through the banner. Right. But mm-hmm. ultimately he understood and recognized, I mean, he knew he, who he was deep down inside and he allowed for, you know, these activities for him to make money in order to be able to pursue the things that he felt were, was really important. Um, and you, you could call that immoral, perhaps, or you could call that him being, you know, again, honest and true to himself. Um, because, I, you know, ultimately, I, I think that he was a character very much like Rourke um, in the sense that he was an individualist. He knew what he wanted he just used other means um to pursue that where rourke you know only used the singular means to pursue what he thought was was true about himself um, exactly it seems that Wynan is way more Machiavellian, and in that too he is also but i feel pro work is more giving the people what they want in order to be able to wield that power and so he's he yeah might not be compromising what's true to himself but he's compromising any sense of what the nature of truth is because 
truth is just what they tell you versus it being something very concrete and i mean especially if we're speaking about something like aesthetics or beauty yeah it can get subjective but in just flat out reporting the news it seems they were quite slanted and they pick and chose winners and losers i mean Tui also like the biggest slight he could have had against Proark is actually not mentioning him at all, and he doesn't even mention right. him until I think, I think it's the I I forget if he attacks him over the Stoddard Temple or if it's at the end whenever it's over the housing project. I think he goes after it's, him for the Stoddard the, Temple. No, he didn't go after it's the housing. Him. It's okay, the housing because the Stoddard Dominique went after him. Yeah. Well, but they both went after him for very mm-hmm. different reasons. And so that was yeah. again one of the questions I asked my students was, so why would Dominique and Tui join forces? And what were the motivations behind that? And, and you know, they were, in some ways they were similar, but in other ways they were obviously very different. So Dominique went after Rourke because in the same way that she threw the Greek statue down the air shaft, she felt like, the world wouldn't appreciate Rourke and his genius. And so I want to prevent them from destroying him. And so I'm going to take him out in order for, because the world just won't appreciate it. Where Tui did it because he wanted a different kind of world. uh, And he also recognized that the world wouldn't appreciate Rourke, but he wanted, you know, he wanted everybody um, to, he wanted to even the playing field. He wanted, you know, everybody to have a say in what is good and right instead of exactly you know, th- those people who actually understand what is good and right with respect to architecture or design. And, um, you know, he wanted the, the masses to drive that debate and that discussion. And, I, you know, I, I hesitate to even call it elitist because I, I you know, I, I, I don't think... Um, it's almost anti-elitist elitism. Well, right. I mean, that's you know, you know was Tui's Tui's perspective, but um, you, know, uh, you know, he came from I, I, I think a sensibility that well, I don't know if that's true. I was going to say he came from a sensibility that you know everybody has a right to. Um, agree about beauty or not beauty and uh and everybody has a say so in that and, and everybody's opinion should be recognized and appreciated um and where you know Rourke just internally knew what he felt like was right and with regard not right but he Rourke, um internally felt he knew the kinds of things that he wanted to pursue and he didn't want to compromise on that. And he wasn't necessarily calling them beautiful or, you know, I'm better than you are. He's just saying, this is the way I'm going to live my life. Yeah. And what, what Tui wanted to do was, um, um, minimize that individual genius in, in again, put the description or, or the, uh, you know, how people would uh, relate to beauty. You know, he wanted to make that available to the masses. 
so then you have to ask the question is that is that right is that correct is that you know i believe that everybody should have an opinion about what they feel like is beautiful or not beautiful um but at the same time there are, i think there there are a few people that can truly determine what that is and is that elitist to say that probably i don't know um but it's also what's the motive of the people who are determining what that is, you know, because it's for sure spelled out in the book that Tubi's doing it for plain malicious reasons and like other egoic type reasons, but not egoic in this. I mean, actually, in more altruistic reasons of, okay, we're going to open it up to everyone and anyone can basically be an architect or a painter or or anything it just depends on if i say that they are and i th think if the intent it's a tough pro but i th think if the intent is more trying to praise that degree of overall self awareness versus trying to impose an an ideology because only a certain people fit into any ideology and then the others are cast out or killed or what have you and that determines i think the maliciousness but i don't know if i'm out there trying to give everyone a voice it makes them post since kind of it becomes to a consensus of what's good but then everyone's going to be worried about what everyone else thinks um it's uh just after the heller house um pro work gets a commission i'm blanking on the name but that person actually calls dominique and and says oh i saw what you wrote about that house is it pretty bad is it is it actually awful you know and she steers him away from pro art to keating and i don't know it, it's just that whole question of intent tomonique is for sure very layered and why she's trying to cause destruction and the book argues she's good even though yeah. it has the same result as tui which is just mind-blowing and just like she yeah, is so good one but... of my questions to my students was huh. what the hell's going on with rourke and dominique i mean what a what a complicated unsettling relationship that is very unsettling so, so i was trying to going back to Tui for a minute um i always again keep in mind uh it's it might be better explained in terms of atlas shrugged so mm -hmm. when reardon created his you know, ingenious manufacturing of, of steel to create mm -hmm. these railroads that surpassed anything that existed. The, you know, they convene a committee to uh, undermine his invention and try to give, you know, access to other manufacturers of steel saying it was unfair that one individual came up with this idea that that should be available to everybody um, exactly. so that so that other people can benefit from you know this invention 
in, in the same way that, so if you relate that to people's opinion about beauty and art and architecture, that's what Tu was trying to do. He was trying to take away from the individual genius and put it in the hands of the masses that everybody should have access and everybody should have the same understanding about beauty and art and architecture. And, and that's just not true. I mean, every, you know, Pete, everybody has their own individual talents. The thing that is argued in Atlas Shrugged is that, you know, you had these, you had a brilliant engineer who created a steel formula. You had a brilliant musician, you had a brilliant artist, you had a brilliant, you know, banker, you had all of these mm -hmm. people that had, you know, specialized expertise that they rose above their peers because they, they, you know, had that individual genius and there's nothing wrong with that. But what society in, in, in Atlas Shrugged, what society tried to do was uh, take away from that individual genius and give it back into the hands of everybody else. So it even the playing field. And that's what mm -hmm. Tui was trying to do with, um, with, the artistic sensibility or the, or people's opinions about architecture is he was trying to take away from the individual genius that existed in Rourke and give it back to the masses to say, well, the masses should determine what's beautiful, not an individual. And, uh, and, you know, and, and so if you say that, no, it really should be the individual that determines what is beautiful. Is that an elitist point of view? And I, I kind of struggle with that a little bit. Uh, part of me says, yes, absolutely, because not everybody's created equally. You know, um, you know, some people are really good at skateboarding and some people are really good at build, designing buildings and some people are really good at hockey. Um, but you don't want a hockey player making a determination on, you know, what painting should be hung in the museum. Yeah, exactly. Um, because their skill set is perhaps beyond that. Not to say that any hockey player could also be a brilliant yeah, yeah. as well. Well, also, like we don't try and play fetch with our cats, you know? It, it just, it isn't in their nature to really play fetch or do something really that a dog would, you know? So why are all of these standards uh, applied absolutely ubiquitously and with a blanket when everyone else is so like I don't think it's that elitist to call for more individualism because also the masses or that that mob think isn't just about everyone and it, it's about okay a group of 10 people or a group of 100 or a group of four and it's like three agree is that fourth going to speak out or a group of 12, like in a jury, you know, is that one person going to stand there and speak to them and saying, no, I actually don't think that they're that guilty or what have you. And it's, and that conviction in those moments is why the individual is so important because we've seen throughout, especially this past century and a half, how perniferous and how brutal absolute group think can be to the point you are turning in family members of crimes that never even committed because they'll do the same to you and it's like them before me and then it ends up happening to you anyway and it's right. it's like that, that's obviously farther t down the slope but it's that's on the slope 
you know, and if you aren't standing up for that individual, because also one thing I come down to in the idea of individual versus collective is what is our conscious experience? That's as an individual. I don't experience it as a collective. On certain elements, I too, but in the ways that people speak about a collective, it, 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 it's basically an aggregation of statistics. And statistics never tell the whole picture of like, well, what's their cost of living? Are they buying enough bread? Or are they happy? These sorts of metrics are often incomplete. Well, they tell and, the what, not the why. Exactly. And the why is something I feel I and Fran really pushed through, even though these people in her book probably haven't ever existed in life, but they're such extremes that they're inside of us. And we all have a certain dynamic of Tui, of Keating, of Proarch, of Dominique, and obviously Wynand, and these needs to try and be more like pro-arc when you're really feeling like Keating and just, but there is for certain that balance because you have to understand that past as well and all of that precedent because as I've heard you say, I don't know how many times, there's really nothing new under the sun and you can waste a lot of time not doing research and like doing doing so and especially today like i'm trying to think when you were in school and had to do research that was like okay i have to go find a book i have to go find it on the shelf and then i mean i did look at a ton of books in school too but it was way more for like visual stimuli versus like i have to find out about corp or something you know and um just yeah, i had to i had to go get to the card catalog and then go, yeah, find some obscure book on some shelf. Hopefully it's there. Catalog told me. Yeah, and sometimes it wasn't, and sometimes it was. Um, yeah, to try to even find a magazine article, um, you had to go, there was a, a special reference for magazine articles that you had mm-hmm. to look up. And then, and so you couldn't just go to, uh, you know, a section of, in in the magazine area of the of the library. You had to go oh, to really? a reference book uh, and look up, you know, uh, what you hoped it was the right reference for that magazine article, and then go and try to find that somewhere in the library afterwards. So it was always a two step process. It was, um, uh, and, and it was it was yeah, it was really difficult. Um, I know that I've told you this story before, and I love telling it because it's so. I, I find it so fascinating. Uh-huh. So when my professor um, in grad school, you know, he was bemoaning the advent of the co- of the Xerox copy machine, and uh, you know, he was just and and I said, well, why was that such a problem? And he said, you know, today, I mean, obviously, it's even different now than it was thirty five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, he said that, you know, students now go into the library, they look up the plan of uh, Shark Cathedral, they open the book up, they slap it on the copier, and, and they have a copy of Shark Cathedral. Mm-hmm. He said, when I went to school, there wasn't the Xerox copy machine. So you had to go to the library, find the book, take a piece of tracing paper, roll it out across the book, 
and trace the plan. And he said there was something magical that happened. Yeah. When when you did that, because all of a sudden you understood the proportions, the relationships, the axes that were set up, um, uh, and, and all of the different elements that created that plan. You just couldn't have, you know, you didn't have a Xerox copy of it. You actually drew it, and it became part of you in the drawing of it. Exactly. And, and so. Um. That story has always stuck with me because, you know, you know, I've always said that there's something wonderful that happens in the hand-eye coordination of doing a sketch and, you know, continuing to sketch and draw by hand. Mm -hmm. Yes, the computer is a, a wonderful tool. To me, it's it's a big electronic pencil um, mm -hmm. and should be thought of it in that way. It's just It's just another tool in your toolbox, but it shouldn't be the only tool that drives design. You've got to be able to um imagine it in your head and be able to, to for it to come out you know through a sketch in your sketchbook uh to then be translated into something digital um and so you know that whole experience of doing research and looking up things you know it was even shortcut you know from from when i i did it mm -hmm. um you know compared to what my my professors had to do uh, yeah, so even exactly. Today with you know, oh, well, let's just ask Google. Google knows everything. Um, it's a, uh, you know, you short circuit that process as well. I think. Uh, yet, yet another uh, step away from the reality of, of uh, integrated learning um, is exactly. you know, just looking looking something up and seeing something digitally on a screen versus even in a book even having the yeah. copy of it, um, let alone hand drawing it. Yeah, and I really found those hand-drawn precedent studies that we did in school early on. I, I feel we should have done a little bit more, but um, it really gave you a sense because also almost all these plans were exclusively modern so there's a lot more complexity than here's the parthenon you know i mean like that's very straightforward or even all of these churches the plan's very straightforward you know um, but with that with the implementation of modernism that will actually that real ability to draw it out and to really feel how others also drew it as well. And you get a real sense of that spatial and proportional relationships rather than it being just printed or looked up and things, things reveal themselves to you as it's being drawn out that you maybe didn't even quite see beforehand. And um, whenever I did my first precedent drawing, I actually did not have a pencil sharpener. And so whenever I had a desk crit, my professor just sat down and um, it was um, McDonald and it just, like, as he's sitting down, I can hear the huff, like, coming. Just, he's just like, 
and, and yeah, so who for your last two professors? And I told him, and you just like get a sharpener, and he just like he was there like eight seconds, you know. He just I was like, oh no, I just like I got roasted without even being told anything terrible, you know. But it was it was for sure an awful feeling. And then the next time, you know, in like um two days after I had a very clean or clean for me anyway a very clean drawing because I had these joint lines that were basically looking like load-bearing walls which was just <laughs> just not good at all and I found great value in that and I also plugged out because I only had a two-story building where my friend Juan next to me, he had a five-story building. And so he had to do five different plates where I just had two. And it was really just one and a half. Um, but I feel that need for precedent putting is important, but it's how you balance that with the pro arc in you of, okay, this is what's been done. How can you propel off of that into something new? But well, it's it's not just what's been done, but it's understanding what's been done. So you know, Why? if you look at, um, you know, if, if you go back to you know uh, towards new architecture in the chapter mm -hmm. that deals with regulating lines, it's all about the analysis and study, right? Is mm -hmm. uh, is Maison Garche? Is that a double square? Is it a you know um, is it uh, a golden section? And then um, you know, are the windows themselves, are they positioned also a golden section from the ground? And, you know, are they, you know, uh, are, are they evenly divided across the facade? And, and, and so it's, it's the analysis of that. And, mm -hmm. you know, I remember doing a number of those analysis, both as an undergrad and a graduate student, um, for, you know, different architects that, um, uh, I think I had to do the Michael Graves Hanselman house. Mm -hmm. <laughs> which was a, um, you know, which is one of his more modern, you know, it was before he really kind of jumped into figurative architecture, mm -hmm. doing a lot of postmodern work. And, um, you know, it's, a, it, you know, from a, a uh, an analysis point of view, both in plan and in section and in elevation, it's a brilliant project. And, and all of a sudden you think, well, he just didn't, you know, invent this shit. He actually deliberately thought about the proportions of everything the windows the opening exactly you know whether you were entering on 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 the edge whether you were ending on center uh or just off of off of center um and, and so you know all of that was really thoughtfully done and executed and it's it's a wonderful house to study um and there were a whole series of uh, you know we did maison garche and you know villa savoie i mean i think we mm -hmm. did several two or three um, core projects. We did a Meyer project. Uh, um, I think we did one of all of the whites. We did probably a Guacan project oh, really? in, in, a, in a Graves project. Uh, and so, yeah, it was, you know, it was just illuminating to know that at least at one point in the careers of some of these uh, current architects, uh, more famous architects, not core, because obviously he was dead, long dead, but um, that, you know, they just didn't make this stuff up. It was it was purposeful. It was deliberate and uh, intentional, and um, and it it actually gave you a sense of awe about their work, and mm -hmm. to think, well, you know, they're 
you know, they're well known now for a reason. You know, this is where they started, maybe evolved from that, but they were really doing something, you know, you know interesting and beautiful and 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 uh, and unique. Uh, and and so yeah, I I enjoyed that part of it, and I didn't feel like I was going backwards and doing it. Uh, I felt like I was understanding architecture better by looking exactly. at those precedents and looking at those examples. And did you do that in undergrad or grad school? Both. Both. Okay. Yeah. Um, because it's all that balance of really understanding why they did all these things, and it isn't even about moving on from the past as well it seems like it, it, it it's that attempt to also bring it with you and to show all of these really brilliant ideas or themes or what have you that have been lost on the average person or lost in contemporary society or what have you and i think it's not to me, I feel like it's not taught enough. I, I remember sitting on a jury at University of Florida. It was for, it was a senior jury. It was probably three years ago. And mm -hmm. their project that they were presenting, it's their final project, was a, um, uh, was a re religious edifice. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, it didn't necessarily need to be Catholic or Christian or Muslim or whatever. It was just a, you know, it was a spiritual edifice. And so, you know, with that, and it was, you know, set in a, um, in an area that was, you know, close to Gainesville, Florida, but, it, you know, set kind of in the woods. Um, and so when the students were describing the project, I mean, for some reason, I just started honing in on the issue of, um, you know, a proportional system. And mm -hmm. I don't know why I kept coming back to it, because for me... Did they bring it up? No, I did. Okay. So for me, you know, if you're doing an office building, there's a certain, you know, you do an office building and it, it you know, the floor to floor height is, is uh, specific because, you know, there's a certain efficiency to that. You don't build... Mm -hmm an office building floor that's 20, 20 feet high because you have a lot of wasted space there. It doesn't need to be that high. But you also don't do a, a floor to floor height of 10 feet because that's too low. And so mm -hmm. there's a certain, you know, um, and you don't do it necessarily based on proportions. You do it based on, you know, what the, you know, how, what the efficiency of it and how the world deals with it. Well, when you're talking about a religious edifice, there's there are no rules associated with that and so mm -hmm. i kept coming back to the fact well how did you like this one guy had this really narrow long and thin you know that if you were to set up pews it would probably be you know if there was a, a center aisle there would probably be uh, seats for you know two people on each side of the aisle i mean it was just this really long thin thing That's and weird. i said well you know it's a you know, it's an interesting building, you know, you've designed something that looks attractive. How did you determine how wide to make it? You know, was there anything driving you to do that? And they looked at me very confused. I said, well, did you do it based on, 
um, you know, the height of the building as it relates to the width of the building? Did you do it based on a double square? Did you use a golden section? Did you, I mean, how did you determine this? You know, did you do any research on proportionality and how it relates to spirituality? Um, mm -hmm. You know, if you look at the work, you know, of, and it's been well documented, you know, the, the villas of, of Alberti and how um, they are, you know, uh, mathematically organized based on musical principles. Exactly. And so, you know, and I, you, you know, even brought that up. I said, is there anything in here that, you know, is did you just do this by gut and feel, and mm -hmm. uh, and and do you think that that's the right way to approach something that has, has you know spiritual significance, or should it be related to you know something higher, uh, you know something more important? And mm -hmm. I don't know why I I just honed in on that, but it seemed like because there was nothing from a financial or efficiency point of view with the building type, again, if you do a hospital floor to floor, you know, is different. You know, this, if you do an office building floor plate, there's a certain size that's kind of the right, you know, in the, in the sweet spot of how you would do a development for a basic office building. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, you should ultimately understand what some of those rules are. But if you look at it from a regulating the lines point of view, you can probably throw those rules out the window because it doesn't, you know, it, it's based on a, an economic model more than it is on a, you know, something that's different than that. Whereas a religious edifice is not based on an economical model. It's based on potentially something higher, something more important. And I almost got into a knockdown <laughs> I got fight with one of these students <laughs> over this because they they just didn't Should've get filmed it. it really yeah. oh. <laughs> they just didn't get the fact that when you're doing something you know that is you know beyond just the pure economics of building a, a certain type of building um you, you've got to have a, a higher reasoning other than yeah i wanted to make it long and skinny okay well why you know yeah. what, what's driving that decision please give me something um and, and, you know, and many of them were unable to address that at all. Uh, and it was very disturbing. I mean, I found that the whole, the whole exercise very disturbing. Yeah, unfortunately, I, I found a lot of that why lacking in a lot of the projects I saw throughout school and it was also because at times it wasn't really questioned by the professor as well and I don't know there's a, a, a thought out there that are way more on that gut feel and is it cool or is it aesthetically pleasant but that's like trying to do finger painting and, and, and have it come out Picasso, you know, just like it's it, it, like, yeah, you can maybe get there, but if you don't have that compositional element and that idea behind it and driving of, oh, oh, I'm actually placing the eyes and ears over here and it's, and it's, it's flipped and, you know, and just having some sort of idea of composition and program or something um, 
for because at times yeah it can look cool but then at times it can it's it can be also t difficult and then are you a sculptor or, or are you an architect like I right it seems architecture is way like as much as it is the physical um i mean the the medium that all of us actually experience is not the actual true form of it, but the space that it leaves. And and that sort of appraisement of those spaces is something that is, that must be the question, I think. Way, like, and then everything I think else kind of falls in line after from economics to technology to structure on and on. But the spaces seemed like the most crucial in the in the potential to rearrange them into something we haven't quite experienced before. Well, absolutely. And again, it's it's um, you know what's driving those decisions. And so, if you go back to the discussion we were having earlier about analyzing, you know, some of these projects, some of these precedents, and and discovering, wow, that they. They set the roof line because you know it was one and a half times the width of the building, um, mm -hmm. and and not because they had to set it at one and a half times, but it, it just proportionally looks better that way. And and that in in at at some point, that was a deliberate decision by the architect to do that to create this you know beautiful building, mm -hmm. and and there are reasons why you know. And, and the reason why you can analyze it is because they were deliberate in their process about making these kinds of decisions. And so that's what I was honing in on, on the students is the fact that, yeah, you should always have, you know, probably some arbitrariness and some artistic movement, you know, within your building that is perhaps unexplainable, but 90% of all your other decisions should be very, very deliberate and purposeful. And, exactly. and so I want to see that part first. I want you to ha explain it to me in, in ways that I can understand based on your concept and based on your party and based on your, your big idea. You know, walk me through that process and then show me the really cool stuff that, where you broke the rules for that. Because also, like, how often can you show a client a picture of something cool and then not say anything and just like a mic drop and they buy it? It seems like they're always going to have questions. Like, of course they are. Yeah. You know, especially cost and timeline. And is it actually going to look like the rendering? But I really like how the course is set up and. and and how it moves from the fountainhead right into Bernaleski and really that first hard-nosed architect and really an engineer as well in understanding not only the design but that entire process of how it gets built and I'm I've started putting it some but all finished by this uh, weekend, and um, I'm ex I'm pumped over that as well. And um, well, I just my students have already started drawing analogies between uh, the Fountainhead and Brunelleschi, exactly, uh, or, or, or or you know the rivalry between Gilberti and, and Brunelleschi, exactly. Um, 
exactly. So it's, it's 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 already been an interesting discussion. Yeah, and um, one thing whenever I took the class, um, we kind of lost the Fountainhead comparisons after a few books, partly because there's so much content, but it'd be nice to, to almost deliberately, like almost reinforce those it, it, those extremes because especially by the time we got to carry we were kind of talking about them but not really uh, like that was more because it was the last book and it wrapped everything up but especially leading up to it we didn't really discuss but i think it's quite pertinent especially in books like the odd couple and so on you know where it actually plays on two different competing sources but um I really look forward to speaking um next time also, and uh, I mean I, right. I too feel we can speak for pretty much ever, you know, and um <laughs> and yeah. going on almost um two hours is probably oh is that a, really we've been two hours wow yeah one forty five and then um it was about like ten or and just so beforehand and um i mean i've really inch uh i've really enjoyed this and i feel we can even keep going but it would also venture in to other topics of of discussion as well and i feel all these books really build on each other and they, they really all um, intertwined so also send me the updated syllabus because did you take out that second Philip Johnson book um I did I took that out the second Philip Johnson I added the last two parts of the fountainhead so I'm going to have him read the whole thing and okay then I sweet inserted the architect suicide okay sweet um and is the suicide over two classes or just one two two cool cool um yeah. sweet and um I am looking forward to all of that, and um, right. I will talk to you soon. And I will s s send you after I um figure out what I'm gonna do with this. <laughs> okay. All right. All Love right. you. Bye. All right. Love you too. Bye.